You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. We have an amazing program for you today. I'm excited. I'm going to be introducing a guest you haven't heard before. Her name is Karen Rogers. We'll be with her in just a minute. I want to let you guys know. There's going to be a new book coming up soon. Is it going to be ready for the holidays? I don't know. My anticipation is no, we're not going to get it out that fast. But by January, you will be able to get your hands on prayers that shake heaven and earth. And uh, this particular product is going to be a collection of a lot of the prayers that we have on BrideMovement.com and our prayer resources section, which many of you have grown to love and rely upon and share. And it's also going to include additional prayers that have not been put up on our website to build an additional value to that book. And so we're really excited about that coming up. Stay excited with us. Uh, we are also really excited about a few things that are coming up, um, particularly as we move into 2018. We're going to be designing the prayer class at Bride Ministries. Why? We are looking to really branch out into um, turning this platform into a bit of a prayer ministry where people can write in letters and we have a team of people prepared to respond to those emails with actual prayers and uh, that way people have an additional support for the journeys that they are taking we get a lot of emails and, and we, we, we've begun to you know word things on our website a certain way so the people understand we, we're not equipped to um, respond to just random questions or, you know, we, we can't pray for every person that listens to this podcast and wants a specific prayer for their situation, but we want to. So we're going to be training people how to pray. And, and that's the next course you're going to see being available at Bride Ministries. I'm beginning work on that manual now that uh, the, the project Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth is essentially written and edited. So look forward to that. Also, I want to say thank you to all of our contributors. You keep this thing floating and moving forward. You are uh, the reason why we're able to keep advancing the agenda of God to establish this organization and financial stability. So I just want to say thank you. And I want to say if you have received from this ministry, if this ministry has blessed you or the lives of those that you love and care about, I want to encourage you, support us. It's as easy as going to bridemovement.com. We have conveniently placed donate buttons. You can write to us at our P.O. box. I um, want to encourage you to do that because, you know, in the kingdom of God, generosity is part of the culture and God rewards it. It's so clear because his word says, he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. So with that said, um, one other thing we're going to begin doing um, <clears throat> some regional stuff. Also, by the way, if you happen to be living in the Dallas area and you listen to this podcast, we're going to be doing a get-together kind of thing this month with people associating with Bride Ministries in the Dallas area. And if you'd like to be a part of that event, write to us at info at bridemovement.com and we'll add you to the list. With that said, we're going to get to the podcast. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall.
Folks, we're here on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall to meet somebody that has never graced our program before, but I'll tell you, I am very excited about interviewing. Her name is Karen Rogers, and she has written a book. Her book is called Racing with My Shadow, the compelling true story of America's first leading female jockey. And she truly was America's first leading female jockey in her time. She was, uh, well, known nationwide for her performance in her sport. She has been featured all over, including Late Night with David Letterman, The Donahue Show, Howard Cassell's Sports Beat, ABC's Good Morning America, NBC's Today Show. The list of places she has appeared for media appearances is extensive, guys. And I got her on our program to share the true story. That is the story behind the story revealed in her book. And man, oh man, thank you, Karen Rogers for joining me on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity to um, speak to your listeners. And I just pray that God gives me words of encouragement to those that are in a difficult place. Um, From what I survived, that there would people know that there is hope in all the hopeless situations, that God can do all things. And um, this book was supposed to be published 27 years ago by Simon & Schuster, but God told me not to do it then, and so I waited, and um, 27 years have gone by, and I was growing in the Lord. The Lord knew what I needed, and um, I ended up homeschooling my son and teaching writing in a homeschool co-op, which was how I was able to actually edit the book down and put in exactly the way I feel that God wanted me to tell my story. And um, the reason I wrote the book, the reason I'm just getting it out was I didn't want to die and face the throne of God and say, Lord, I, I lived through this. I remembered it. I was able to write it down. And you gave me the memories. You did all these miracles. And I didn't put it out there for for people to see. I'll feel like I Uh, was taking my talents and hiding them, Um, you know, like burying your coins. And I just didn't want to be that person. So this was the year that he said, it's time to go. And um, I had a big Christian publisher that wanted it. But again, the Lord put a check on my spirit and wanted me to do it, Um, actually self-publish it, which was huge for me. Um, I didn't know, I wasn't very good on the computer, but the cool thing is my mother and I ended up editing it together and we grew so much. We laughed and we cried, but my mother's a huge part of my story. Um, and we just, God touched her heart this past year and a half. The book came out in May, but the last year and a half, she's seen God working. She'd seen the enemy come against me and she knows God is real. And for just that alone, it was worth doing it with her and following what God said, because he always knows what's best and he sees the big picture when we don't. We have our our plans and then like God laughs. (laughs) He says, I have a better plan. (laughs) Um, So like just even my plan in life would have been to be a great jockey and he had a better plan. He had his plan for me to know him and for uh, 
for me to use my life for his glory, which well, is what ma- matters. Amen. And uh, that is certainly true. And, and, and folks, I mean, this is true of you too, for those of you that are listening. God has a plan. Now, Karen, I want to get started at the beginning because here we have a story in its original version over a thousand pages long. Of course, if you plan to buy the book, which I would highly recommend, um, it is not that long in its final version. I uh, I want to get 400, s- 400 pages, 400 pages. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to get started at the beginning of the story, Karen. Um, how does your story begin? Okay, so I was a normal, I was grew up in a normal home. I had a normal father and mother, an older sister. She's a year and a half older than me. I had to change her name in the book. Um, I changed a few names in the book. Um, so we grew up, I was about nine. Everything was normal. I thought my parents got along. And my mother had an interest in horses. We always, I was riding since I was three years old. And... Um, she, we moved to a place where it was more horse country, and she started riding with other people. And she met a guy who she was taken by him. He was very charming. And what she didn't know was that he was a pedophile. And having kids, he obviously targeted her to get to my sister and I. I was nine at the time, and my sister was 11. And so he totally charmed my mother and to get into our house and so he used to come over for dinner and we'd all go to the movies now my father at the time had heard he was gay so he wasn't concerned about my mother with him and my sister and I were very confused we didn't know like who he liked because my mother acted like she liked him but we'd go to the movies and he would sit with my sister or me and it was it was very very confusing but anyway um my father eventually got the idea that um, there was more to this, so he ended up leaving. And my stepfather, he became my stepfather. Um, his name is Vince in the book. That's not his real name. So Vince, actually, he manipulated a way to get my father to leave. He told my aunt that he was um, – it's a little complicated. It's not in the book. But he told his boyfriend, who told my aunt that he was sleeping with my mother – and my aunt told my father, and it wasn't true. So that made my father leave. And I've realized this editing the book because I know that everything was manipulation to get to the kids. And so my father left, and it wasn't even true that my mother was with him, but he got him out of the house so he would have more access to my sister and I. Anyway, my mother was dating him, And he was playing her one way and playing my sister and I another way because these people are master manipulators. And so I believed he was my boyfriend, even though I was 9 or 10, he would tell me that. And yet my mother, you know, he was my mother's boyfriend. So the whole thing was very convoluted. And I remember there was a key memory that came to me that made me realize I was bad. And that was when I saw them kissing in the dining room, and I went ballistic because I knew he was supposed to be my boyfriend. He had crawled into the bed with me, and he said he loved me. And so I got really angry, not realizing that it was really my mother's boyfriend. And my sister, who was older, knew that 
that he was my mother's boyfriend so she told me to stop being upset that that was normal but what I didn't know till now is that she actually knew it was wrong too but she was old enough to know it was wrong so she hid her feelings and so I acted out and at that moment I told myself I went crazy I was slamming the doors trying to break the windows I felt so betrayed and meanwhile he had been working on me um, that's what made me feel like that so I told myself that I would never act out like that again that I was bad and I would hide that bad person deep inside of me I'd never be like that again and that became the bad me who is r the real me in the book um, and then this other person is Karen the jockey that's the person that becomes outgoing and good and successful and that was the person that my stepfather groomed me to be because he was into the horses and he got my first racing pony and he was going to make me a great jockey so that alternative um, person that I was was pleasing him and it was also my escape from who I really was so for you there was no real significant trauma that led to dissociation, I would call it, prior to this guy who becomes your stepfather moving into the picture. As the, far as the, you understand your story. No, there was nothing that was actually traumatic, but the emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. He started raping me when I was 15, but I had the body of a 10-year-old. I didn't get my period till I was 21. But the sexual abuse was nothing compared to the emotional abuse. The abuse was, subconsciously, he had my me believing my mother hated me, and he did that to, and I didn't remember this till the end of the, till I was going through what was wrong with me. It was suppressed. But what happened was, he came from an Illuminati family, and his mother had been sexually abusing him and his grandfather. His his family goes back to, and we found this out as we were editing the book because he hid all this. His father was the governor of a state. His grandfather was the governor and a and a, um and an ambassador, and so he had very big money ties. But all this was kind of kept from us. But his mother was crazy, so his mother had actually been sexually abusing him, and he hated his mother. So he had this love-hate relationship with his mother that he projected onto my mother. So he hated my mother, but he acted like he loved her. And this really confused me because I knew she was good and loved me and loved him, but I knew she was bad. So I had this dichotomy that was going on all through my story. And a lot of it I put in italics to tell the reader what's going on. But the real, the real issue was his lies became my truth and his lies were about my mother and it was very convoluted but it was all related to who I was and so the real damage was how I felt I took my mother's boyfriend away and that she didn't love me and both of those were lies um, the power of lies is unbelievable and lies to children how they become part of your truth is just very convoluted Wow so stepping back from that you're nine ten years old how do you get into jockeying okay so he there was 
I was riding and, and fox hunting. We live in a really nice area. Jackie Onassis lived here. There's a lot of money, a lot of Illuminati families. But my, we moved here for the horses. We didn't come from a money family. But my stepfather got a pony that um, we got a pony that he said I would start racing because it was something called pony races, the local pony races. So he started training my pony when I was 11. And it wasn't going to be my sister's or my mother's. It was just him and I. It was our little thing, just like our little secret. We had a lot of secrets. And so he was grooming me, and I wanted to please him. And so, but yet when I would act out, when he would do things to me, to um, he would sort of mock me in front of my mother, and I would get angry. But he would tell my mother that I was a bad sport because I wasn't winning the pony races. So he had a whole other set of truths going on with my mother to make up for why she didn't understand why I had changed so much. I became an angry, angry, introverted kid, and I was never like that. But the reason she missed it was he had all the reasons why I was acting that way to throw the focus off of him. And he even wrote a play about it that we found later. So the man was very, very good at what he did. He was trained this way. I believe he was trained as a, you know, from a child to do these kind of things. But he's very manipulative. So this is why people say, why didn't your mother see what was going on? Well, he was manipulating her too. And he was getting from her what he needed. So um, anyway, so I was riding in the pony races, I guess for about four or five years. And I just, I lived for the pony races. I totally, I could just bury myself. Um, it, there was maybe six of them a year. There was three in the spring and four in the fall. And, um, I just lived for them. And even though I never won because there was a little thoroughbred and, um, a kid would race his thoroughbred. He won 33 straight races, never defeated till I finally defeated him. He had, it was a twin that never grew. So this little thoroughbred horse was running against other ponies, ponies meaning little horses, you know, Mm -hmm. little, small. And, um, so he started winning at nine and, but I just lived for the pony races and that was my escape. And my goal was to be a great jockey at age 16, which is what Steve Cawthon had done. Do you know who Steve Cawthon is? Now, I, I don't know much about the jockeying world at all, so you'll have to forgive me. Okay, okay. so he won the Triple Crown when he was 16 with Affirmed, mm-hmm. and he, he, was a top, he was a top leading rider in New York at age 16, so I wanted to be just like Steve, and I wanted to escape the insanity of my home life. We had gotten a farm. My stepfather had made my mother sell her house and buy a farm and kind of made her like a slave in the barn, and then when they got married, he got her pregnant but he was always gone and I think he had other things going on but he kind of put our whole family into this almost like a slave mode it was really crazy and my escape to get money and to get a life was to be a great jockey but he always had his hand on me Um, I was one of his projects I guess Wow you okay and I, I, I I'm seeing something here as you're telling your story, and it's it's profound how a person that is highly programmed, which I believe he was coming from an Illuminati background, is able to move into a situation and almost put a cloud of confusion over an entire group of people to make them think and act totally differently than they used to and not even realize it's happening as it's happening. You said it perfectly. 
it was a, we we all were in chaos. My and it turned out my older sister ended up getting bulimic. I was bulimic later, but at this time she became bulimic. She still has issues. She doesn't want to read my book. She doesn't speak because of my book. There's been major issues with both of my sisters. Uh, my stepfather had a child with my mother. That's my younger sister. She's 15 years younger. But everybody was affected. To this day, they are affected. Their relationships are affected. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Meanwhile, he walks out of our life. And then he ended up getting married and continuing the cycle with another family. But this doesn't end. It's generational. And they walk away. And we ended up we end up pointing a finger at each other when he's the one that created all the havoc and the damage. My sister blames my mom, I blamed myself, my mother blamed herself, everybody, the whole thing got very, very convoluted and he he walked away and he was doing all the damage. And um, he was doing other things at the time too, it wasn't just our family, he got horses to train at the track and there was Illuminati people that owned these horses. This is how I know on editing my book with my mother, we made all these connections. We didn't realize all this. We didn't realize how big this, how deep this went. We just thought it was some guy that did this, but it goes all the way back, and we saw all the connections. I don't make the connections in my book because I still want to live for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. there'll be a volume two. I am uh, just profoundly intrigued by your story. And yeah, I just respect you so much, Karen for being willing to talk about it and so frankly now let's come back so you're being manipulated and also moved into a career in jockeying when did you actually hit success and how long did that season of your life well, before that, when I was 15, uh-huh. my stepfather took his horses that he was training. He had some horses at the track, and that's how I got to start at the racetrack at 15. He took them to a faraway track so that I would have to spend the weekends down there with him in order to gallop the horses. I was working for him all summer at Monmouth Park, and we were driving every day. But once the fall came, he took the horses to another track that was far away so he could get me away for the weekends knowing that I would go. And that's when that's when the rape started. Um, that's when he got a motel and I would just um, I, I just would I was so appalled by the whole thing. First of all, I wasn't sexually I didn't even have a chest. I didn't have my period. And he was also gay. So I think he was more attracted to me than my sister who was more developed but I also think it's it was all a control mechanism but I would you know I would tell him that I you know why aren't you doing this to my mother she loves you and nothing that I said was would ever stop him so most of the time I would just dissociate and and kind of tune out to what was happening um so that was going on every weekend for the whole fall and I would go back to school and just try to feel normal but I knew I was broken I was just a mess inside but I would have to play the role of being normal I was a straight A student and I wanted to get out of school by 16 so I had done a lot of courses but so that's when um, and I knew what he did was wrong I knew my mother loved him and so I just wanted to get away from him so when when I got I eventually got at 16 you can get a jockey's license so I begged him to give me my first two mounts so that I could get my license and start freelancing, riding for other people. So that's what I did. And I carried a lot of guilt 
my whole career that I had so-called slept with him for mounts because I felt guilty that I used him to get my first two mounts to get my license because I looked like I was 12 and literally people called me a little boy and I don't think I was going to get a chance to show that I was a good rider unless I had gotten my license. So I did get my license and that the summer I was 16, I won 14 races at Monmouth Park. I got an agent. Um, I was doing really, really well. And um, then we moved on to the Meadowlands. At this point, my stepfather had... Um, had split with my mother. I think he was having an affair on the backstretch with another one of the Illuminati people. And we've traced all this. It was one of his owners. And so my mother didn't understand. She thought she still loved him. She thought we were all going to be together. I knew that he hated her, and I couldn't understand why she still loved him because he would tell me he hated her. So, But I just ba buried myself in riding. I buried all my feelings, the guilt I had toward my mother that I ruined. I really believed I ruined her life. I mean, that was my reality. And so that fall, I was fourth leading rider at the Meadowlands, and it, I was getting on all the television shows, and my goal was to go to New York at, at 17, is, which is what I did. And so um, I was the first girl in New York, and they actually, I was all by myself in the girls' jocks room in the back there, and some of the great riders like Angel Cordero and George Velasquez, and they all voted to have me come down and come into the rec room with them so I could play ping pong and eat at the counter and be one of them. So they were like, they were like fathers and brothers to me. They were like my family. Um, so, and that developed, um, you know, at that Riding was my saving grace. I always say God gave me that to save me. Um, mm -hmm. So then to get back, so I was riding, and what happened was my stepfather would try to keep a connection with me. He would call me. He would make me call him on the way back from the races. He would send me letters that he loved me, that he missed me, and that he would kill himself if I didn't call him. So I was hiding this, calling him after the races, and I would shred the letters and bury them in the in the waste paper basket in the jocks room. And it's, this was my big secret. And I always told him if my mother ever found out, I would kill myself because I just repeated back what he said. So anyway, he would come up to visit because my little sister was his real daughter. She was two, but he had no – she was one, but she, he had no interest in her till she turned two, which is – I read that that's how the Illuminati work. But anyway, he was after me. So he would come to New York to visit, but he would ride in the car with me, not with my mother and my little sister, his daughter, and I would feel so guilty and so horrified that my mother would know. I lived in this tremendous thing of guilt, even though I was winning races and doing well. So eventually my mother, what happened was that spring, it wasn't even a year I was riding, my mother was in, in the jocks room with me. We were sharing the car, and I was in the back taking a shower. And she happened, this was totally a God thing. She went to blow her nose and throw the tissue out, and she saw the letter, a little piece of his letter with his handwriting on it. And what we didn't realize till we were editing my book is that I had buried the, the letter in shred pieces on the bottom of the garbage. What we figured out was she told me it was in a big bin. The janitor had come in turn the garbage can over on top of the bigger garbage can and so the letter was at the top and she just leaned over and there it was with my stepfather's writing and his name on it so she grabbed it all and pieced it together and this was an act of God because 
I never would have told. I would have gone to my grave with the secret, <laughs> which would have killed me. Um, so she taped it together, and then when she confronted me that night, I went numb. I don't remember her talking to me at all. I completely, like, zoned out because I knew I would kill myself if she found out. So she's told me later that she told me it wasn't my fault and whatever happened, it's not my fault, but I don't remember any of it. All I remember was throwing myself more into riding and worried that she was going to kill me now. And um, so she would cry in her room, and I thought it was because I had ruined her life, and it was because of what he did to me. So everything was very a different perception from everybody. Um, she tried to press charges against him. Mm -hmm. He, um, and so when we went to the court, when we went to the lawyer, I thought I was being taken to court for my crimes. And I, at this time, I was the leading rider at Monmouth Park. I was. Um, the leading rider I was 17 I was the leading rider and she was taking me to the lawyers and I was thinking I was going to go to jail that's how convoluted the whole thing was and so when we sat in the lawyer's office the lawyer's like well you can't win this case because it's her word against his and she's she's the leading rider she's in all the papers you're just going to drag her down so I thought I was given a pass and you know they weren't going to condemn me for what happened but meanwhile my mother was upset because she couldn't, you know, the case was dropped. So anyway, you have any questions? My goodness. No, I mean, you're, you're doing a great job telling your story. It's just uh, an incredible story. Painful. Uh, so your mom at this point is contending with the reality that she was manipulated. Her ex-husband was manipulated now she has a child by the man that has manipulated her daughter and obviously gone after you and sexually abused you and she can't even get a case through against him. I can only imagine your mother's pain at this point. Right. And and my little sister, I took that all this out of the book, what happened with her, but because she's not she doesn't deal with anything and she has a relationship with her father so she's in denial but but so we took out I took all that out of my book it was in the original manuscript but he started after her at this time too and he, he as soon as the letter was found he dropped me like a hot potato he never called me he never wrote anything and I thought my mother had me call him because she wanted him to I don't know why she had me call him. I guess to stand up to him, and I was numb. That was right after it happened, and and I was like, she knows. So I expected him to write me more letters, to contact me, to say, are you okay? Uh, I'm sorry, this happened. Nothing. It was just nothing. And that's when I realized all this time I was trying to save his life, and he didn't give a hoot about me. Not one iota. He just used me. And so... Then he started trying to get my little sister, and I knew, actually it was before that, I just don't think I connected that in my brain. He had been getting her before the letter was found, but I never connected that he would hurt her because in my mind, I was the one he loved or was after. So I never did connect that he was after her too, but when, the, when he dropped me after the letter was discovered, he made he would come up every weekend to take her on the weekends so but that's a whole other story and it's not in my book so 
anyway, getting back to my story, so my mother is going through all this, and, and the lawyers and the psychiatrists are all very, they protect these pedophiles, believe me. So, and this was in a day when people didn't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. So now I was, I... I was that summer when I was leading rider, I broke my back. I went down in a spill. I was leading rider, broke my back. And I was, when I was on the, on the racetrack, they said, the paramedics said that I was yelling out for my mom to save me. I don't remember. I was unconscious, but that was just kind of probably my subconscious yelling, mom, you know, help me. Mm-hmm. But, um, anyway, I was in a body cast and I, my immediate fear was that I wouldn't be able to ride. Where was my identity going to go? How would I survive without my racing identity and I was afraid I would gr- I would develop I would develop into a woman and this fear was so horrible because that would make it my fault what happened in my mind so I became anorexic in the body cast I was in the body I was out for six months out of racing and I went my weight got down to 86 pounds I think I was 96 in the cast which was my normal weight but it with the cast I was way too light and and then when the cast came off I went back to eating normally, but I had so much fear of gaining, of developing that I, the normal food, I couldn't really handle it. So then I became bulimic. And I explained in my book how, you know, a lot of the riders are bulimic. They have heaving bowls. The jockeys have heaving bowls because they heave in order to keep their weight down. So that's how I knew about it. So then I became bulimic, not knowing it was deadly. It was a to- it's very bad, very addicting. And I was bulimic for I think eight years um but anyway it all had to do with my body image not with my riding weight because my riding weight was fine I could be up to like 108 and be fine so after then I went back to racing again and did fine like I said though I was I had become bulimic and um so you have any questions yes so you're doing a great job Karen now I want to come back because I do want to spend some more time Having you talk about the eating disorder, I, I really want to get into how you processed the eating disorder. Now, there, there are teenage uh male and female, more more females than males, but you know it goes both ways that that go through anorexia and bulimia, also self harm, cutting, uh, so forth. Self. And, I did that too. I did that too. That oh, came later. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to get to and that. And OCD. And OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. All of those. Wow. So I, I want to, but I, I want to get you to talk to us very candidly about the eating disorder. I get it. There was the body image component. But you were wrestling with extreme guilt. And, and this guilt is based on a self blame, self hatred concept. Well, you know, and it's very interesting. One of the things that the Bible says is no man has ever hated his own flesh. But I meet many people that if you look at what they do to themselves, you can only conclude you must hate your flesh. So where is that hatred coming from if the Bible says that? And I think, well, a lot of it comes from brokenness and trauma and, you know, the interface with demonization and um, the fiery darts of the enemy and on and on and on. I want to really get into what you went through how did it make sense that yeah i'm first anorexic i'm just not gonna eat and then i'm i'm bulimic i really am committed year after year after year to purging myself of all of this what's going through your head i think it's a bit of an escape 
and it's um, it's a control mechanism. I was like control. I had no control over my life. So especially after I broke my back, uh, everything I knew and loved was gone. So it was just me. And so I also became an exercise addict. I would exercise in my body cast for seven hours a day. And I would count to the point where the numbers would go up, like one more was always good. Like I'd get to 55, and I'd say 55-1, 55-2, 55-3. Then I'd go up to 55-7, and I'd add 55-7-1, 55-7-2. So I'd always add on in this odd counting way of always doing more. More was better. Um, skinnier was better. It was always a control over my body to... Now, I did hate my body because of the sexual abuse. I, f I thought, why did I have to have a body? If I didn't have a body, it wouldn't have happened. So I definitely blamed my body for what happened, um, even though I had the body of a little kid. Um, but the control over my body was almost like an addiction and an escape. And the counting and the exercises and the starving was all keeping my mind occupied um, off of maybe the reality that maybe I wouldn't ride or I wasn't riding or I was no good or I ruined my mother's life. It, it became like an, it was an addiction, I would say. And the OCD may have been, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, that may have come from the blow to my head in the accident or it may have come from hormones. I don't know. That's something I've still struggled with to this day. That's the one thing I wasn't delivered from and I believe that God has a purpose for that too. But, um, all the other stuff I've been delivered 27 years. Um, the OCD is a tricky one because I think it has to do with brain chemistry too. But the anorexia, it was a form of control. And what better thing than I'm a jockey, I can't get fat. So it was on, I could make an excuse for myself, but I knew I wasn't. Um, I was going out with another rider at the time, another kid. He was my age and we were just like, kind of like high school you know, just like grade school friends, really. It was like almost like that. But he wanted more. I didn't. And I was thankful for my body cast because I didn't want to deal with sex. So I, um, where was I going with that? We were, uh, we, we were talking about the... The anorexia. Oh, so he, he told me about the bulimia and how to heave. Because he said, you're so lucky. Because he came to ride a horse at Belmont and, he, and I had, was still in my body cast and and he said, you're so lucky. He used to call me Crispy Critter. He goes, you're so, and he's a quadriplegic, by the way. Now he broke his neck uh, when he was 19 in a race. But I took that out of my book. It just, you know, it was, anyway. Mm -hmm. So he, um, he used to say, I said, how do you eat all those pancakes and then go ride? And he said, oh, I go heave. And then he told me how to heave. So I thought, wow, that's really cool. I can eat all that food and still be thin. And so I put that in the back of my mind. And then later on, that's what I did. So, in in all of the, what you said, the, the word that I heard come through the most clearly was the control piece, control, control, control. Where it's like there's all these other areas of your life where you are receiving pain and have no control over them. Yet the area that you do have control is your body. In your way yes. and so there is this over emphasis on let me establish this control and and here's this eating disorder right on the back of that's profound yes and i think that that piece is going to make people listen to this program think real heavily about where their problems are 
coming from. Because I'll tell you, what you have journeyed, Karen, is... It is the journey that people listening to this program are journeying. And so... Uh, or at least some of them. And and so I, I just want to say thank you for being so candid and honest and sharing freely because you are really uh, making an impact. And with that said, I want to come back now because, okay, so we, we were at this point in your t- life. You, you have the body cast. Your career has taken a comma. There's a pause, but it's not over yet. So So what happens in your career after you get the cast off? Okay. Uh, one thing I wanted to say about like the, all this, all these problems don't go away. When you are abused as a child, it sets you up for a cycle of abuse. Your subconscious constantly replays what you've, what's happened when you're young, and this plays out later in my marriage. Um, until you go and deal with the abuse, emotional, sexual it doesn't get better. You just cover it up with alcohol, food, career. I believe the people that do really well in life, their extreme push to succeed, it's it's unusual. It comes from low self-esteem. That was where my push came from to be great. I mean, right now, I, I'm so happy with my life. It doesn't matter what I do in a day. I don't have to prove anything to anybody, least of all myself. I love the Lord, and I know he made me who I am, and I'm great with it. But when you have been abused you'd have to prove to yourself that you're worthy and that's what I believe a lot of people that succeed in life over above and beyond that's what they're running from if they really would because I don't think it's natural it wasn't my drive was not natural because I don't have it now um um, because I'm at peace with with my past so anyway I just wanted to put that out there for people that are running from the abuse with addictions or relationships it doesn't go away until you go back you just keep replaying it on other people you play your play out your childhood on your on your boyfriend or your girlfriend and it just goes on in this cycle of abuse but anyway okay so after that i went back to riding i was doing really well again i i was in new york a few years winning races winning big stakes races and um we went to saratoga and saratoga is the big premier race meeting of the year it's everybody comes from all over the world to go to Saratoga. It's the best race meeting anywhere. It's a month long in August. So it was the first first weekend of the meeting and I was going into the first turn and a couple of uh, apprentice on my outside started coming in on me and I had three horses inside of me. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't get out of his way. So I just held my ground. He cut over in front of me and my horse clipped his heels and down I went and three horses ran over me and I remember just seeing the horse's shoulder as I went over it the next thing I knew I was floating up over my body which was in a stretcher and my arm was up over my head because my shoulder had been dislocated so it was like twisted up over my head and I was floating up and I was looking down at myself wearing all white because they had taken off my colors my silks there was two doctors leaning over me and I was, and there was a nurse, nurses in the back around a big oak desk in the back of the room. It was a big room. And I was floating up and going, wow, my head was clear. And I was going, I must be dying because I'm up here and my body's down there. And my mind was very clear. And I was more real out of my body than in my body, if you can believe that. And what happened was I couldn't believe how small I was. I was so taken by how tiny I was. And I was going up pretty high and my body was the size of about a pencil at that point and I stopped and what I thought was I hit 
the ceiling and the wall. It was the first aid room at the track, but I thought I hit the ceiling behind me. I know now that it was another dimension because I was up way too high. So I was looking down and I thought, wait a minute, I can't die. I wanted to turn and go. I was hovering and I wanted to turn and I knew I would go if I did. But yet I wanted to go back and make things right with my mother. I said, I got to go back and tell her I'm sorry for ruining her life. And the funny thing is all that mattered to me at that point was making things right with my mother. The horses didn't matter. Nothing mattered. I wanted to go, but I wanted to make things right with my mom. I felt like really bad and kind of sad. I felt, wow, I'm, I was too young to die, but I wanted to go. I wanted to leave. So instead of turning, I said, maybe if I focus on my body, I'll get back so I can tell my mother I'm sorry. So I was focusing on my body, and then the next thing I knew, I was my eyes were closed. I was in pain. I was actually in the ambulance being transported from the first aid room to the hospital. And I think my mom was in the ambulance with me. She had been at the track. She used to go to the track all the time and watch me ride because she worried about me. And so I, I think I said to her, am, she told me later, I said, am I going to die? Because I had just kind of come back into my consciousness and she said no at the time she thought my shoulder was just dislocated so she said no you just hurt your shoulder so I went out again and I was unconscious and I was in the ICU and in the hospital for a few days and when I finally did wake up in the ICU um, I didn't remember what had happened until I saw my mother and then I started to cry and I was like where, where have you been and she said well I've been here all along I've been waiting for you to wake up I was at the track I was waiting for you to wake up from this and so then I, it hit me I'm never gonna see her again I knew I felt it. I didn't remember the out-of-body experience but I knew I wasn't gonna see her again at one point and I started to cry and then I was like I wanted to say I love you and I'm sorry but I couldn't say the words I couldn't get in touch with those feelings so I just sort of gave her a hug and stuffed it again, stuffed the feelings back again. The feelings that meant everything to me when I was out of my body just disappeared as I was in my body. We're such prisoners in our body. We really are. We're prisoners. Our spirits are like prisoners because the flesh tells us what we're going to do, and it's all based on stuff, and it's not based on who we really are and who matters. It's it's really messed up. <laughs> it is. So anyway, um, so back in my body, mm -hmm. I dive back into my old ways, which are, you know, bulimia. And, uh, well, this time again, I'm out. I, I broke my back again. My shoulder was dislocated, so I was out for another six months. And they didn't know my back was broken, but it, it had re I broke another vertebrae below the other one. The, I had done T789. This was the one below it. So I, wait, I, I stayed out from my shoulder, but again, I didn't deal with anything with my mother. I just repressed it. So I go back to riding again, and I'm doing really well again. And a few years, now I'm about 21, and my body started to change, and I started to develop. I started looking at men. You know, they were attractive, so which was new for me because I was just – I was always at the track. I was always afraid of trainers. I never stayed in a barn for very long because I was afraid what happened with my stepfather. I didn't trust anybody. And they called me Shirley Temple because I looked like a little girl. And so I had this nickname of being Shirley Temple, like this innocent little girl who ran around getting – you know, riding horses. And yet, for me, I felt like an old warrior that had been through the mill. I felt old. I felt used. And – I was very wary of all the trainers thinking I can't trust them. So I swore I'd never go out with a trainer because of what happened. I didn't want people saying, 
that I was sleeping with somebody for mounts. And that would have been the least thing they would have thought looking at me. But in my mind, I had the guilt of what happened with my stepfather. So I swore I'd never go out with a trainer. Well, so now I'm 21 and I've been riding for, I don't know, five, maybe four or five years, right? And I, and I have a really good, everybody likes me. I'm very well liked. I've done well. I've, I've been a proven jockey. So now I start looking like a woman. I'm not so worried that people are going to think that way about me because I've already established myself as a great jo- as a great jockey. It's I was one of the guys, mm-hmm. and so when the guys, I knew that the guys in the jocks room would date a lot of women and cheat on their wives, and a lot were, you know, they were, they just weren't. A lot of them were from other countries, and so as much as they were my good friends, I didn't trust them that way either they like they would joke with me they'd say hey you want to go out with me because now I started looking like they wanted to go out with me and I'd say hey you know I just make jokes with them because I wasn't going there like even one of them Angel Cordero said did you have an operation he looks at my chest and I said Angel I would have had them both made the same size so you know talking about my chest so I could joke with these guys because I had basically grown up with them and um but but I I got there was a, a trainer that was a top trainer that my agent was telling me to go by the barn to get on some of the horses there and he was one of the leading trainers in the country and I just thought you know Freddie I'm not going to be able to ride any of his good horses so I just go by so I was getting on some of his horses and he was putting me on the ones that weren't so good but he was attractive and he had everything going for me he had money he had not the money but he had style he had he was very cocky he had guns he had a big car he had a plane in my book I made him a sailor but he had an airplane he had a beach bonanza and so I had to make him have a sailboat in the book because I had to change his identity Um, I made his name Pablo Garcia in the book he's not Spanish but I had to do that to hide his identity so anyway um, do you have any questions and I'll stop here before I keep going no no Go, go ahead just keep telling your story Okay, so so he started to, he was interested in me, and he told me that if I hit the board on this horse, meaning first, second, or third, he would take me to dinner. And I said to my mom, and I would tell my mom everything. I was very outgoing with her about the jocks room and my horses, but we never discussed the other stuff. It was all buried, basically, even though my stepfather would still come to see my little sister. So anyway... Um, I didn't know what to do. I said, I really like this guy. So she said, well, tell him that, you know, you're, if you don't hit the board, tell him you wanted to and you still go to dinner with him. So anyway, we started dating and I was completely, completely taken by him. Oh, I forgot to tell you. This is really important. Yes. My relationship with God. I mean, how can I miss it? This is what happened. Going back to my out-of-body experience. Okay. Be- right around, because uh, I got to get to my we never went to church as a kid and my stepfather was an atheist so I always said I was an atheist I didn't even know what it meant I didn't even know what Christmas was that's how I grew up mm-hmm. so on Christmas when I was 17 my sister was at my aunt's and and she started telling me the story about Christmas and I said well how do you know this she said well I go to Bible uh, Bible college she was searching in her own way for for answers and so she told me the story about Jesus and my aunt and so I got to hear and I'm like wow that's really cool so she said well you ought to you ought to get to know God it's really important and I said well how do I get to know God she said well pray so I said how do I, what do I pray for she said just talk to him like he's your best friend and I'm like I don't have a best friend so I went back to the track and we're backtracking now to when I was 
17 or 18 before I, way before I met my husband. So I started praying for horses to win. I would get down in the bedroom of the jocks room, turn out the light, and pray, you know, for God to let this horse win if it was an important race. And sure enough, the horses would win. And it's my mother says, why did you put that in your book? I said, because it's true. I prayed for winners. You know, <laughs> you know that's how it started. <laughs> He started connecting with me, and I started feeling his presence, and I knew he was with me. I knew he was real. And then the out-of-body experience happened, and I knew there was more. Although when I, although my whole childhood was repressing, like, all of the stuff of life and all the abuse was getting in the way of my relationship with God, but I was praying, and I was open to to God and everything, right? So I started getting, my faith started getting stronger. Now I meet my, who is to become my husband is this trainer, right? Mm. And I told him, one of the things I did tell him when we were out to dinner was that I had a relationship with God and he was really important to me. So he pulls out his cross and he tells me how, um, now, now let me tell you a little bit about this man. He's a pathological liar and he was very into mind control. This is who I was attracted to. He was 15 years older than me. He reminded me a lot of my stepfather, but I didn't realize it. Subconsciously, I was attracted to a man that was just like my stepfather. He was manipulative. He was cocky. He had all the, all the window dressing, but I didn't recognize it. I used to tell myself, well, I'll go out with him. I know he's a trainer, but he's not like my stepfather because he's successful. My stepfather wasn't. And so I would constantly tell myself how he's not like my stepfather. But yet in my dreams, my subconscious was connecting him. Like they were the same man in my dream, which was really bizarre. So anyway, he was very into manipulation. And right away, he started me to question all the people at the racetrack. He made me believe they were out to get me. He made me believe that working was bad. And, and so in his own way, he started changing my mind about everything. He knew, my mother told him, okay, so, so this is what happened. He started putting me on the bad horses because of course, deep down, he didn't want me to do well. And when a few of them started winning, he fired me from the stable and blamed his father. Now everybody else saw this and they wondered what was wrong with me. So now I started to lose all my business. So then I went into a depression, and because of this, I was actually suicidal. My mother said to him, told him about my stepfather and what had happened, told him the big secret. So one day over dinner, he tells me what that, that my mother told him, and I couldn't believe. I was in shock. I thought for sure he would drop me. He would hate me. He knew my big secret, and now he would turn against me, and, I, and, it, and it made me get mad at my mother. So he said, I don't know why your mother would tell you, tell you that. It, you know, she shouldn't have told me. So he used this to flip me against my mother. And then he said, I still love you. You are a victim. So he used this over me. He had something over me. He had my big secret, but he loved me anyway. So you have any questions? Just one. So you have a relationship with God at this time. You're praying. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something about the out-of-body experience, but didn't come back to that yet. Mm -hmm. What is the missing piece that you didn't tell us yet about the out-of-body experience before going further with your story about this guy? 
Well, the point was that I knew there was more. I didn't turn around. I didn't see God. I didn't like, but nine years later, and this is later in the book, I was writing my book and went, was writing races again. And I wanted to go back at that part of my book and see what happened because I didn't have the answers had I died. Right. So nine years later in 1990, after my husband, after everything, I, I went back at Saratoga in August and was riding again, had a spill in the exact same spot on the track. Four horses ran over me. I was fine. I went back to the first aid room and I told my agent, you know, maybe I can get some answers about what happened to me here nine years ago for my book. Sure enough, it was the same doctor nine years later in the first aid room. And I said, did you give me drugs? And he said, no. We lost you. You died. So he confirmed that I had died, and then I he showed me the little a room that I was in, and it was small. It was a tiny little room, and I said, that's not what I saw. I saw a big room. There was a big oak desk in it. And he said, no, this is where you were. Your arm, And I said, my arm was up over my head. There was two doctors. He said, yes, that's when we lost your pulse. So anyway, it turns out I, I thought I was in the bigger rooms. I, I couldn't make sense of the story for my book. So... I pushed open the door to the next room, and there was the oak desk that I had seen. So I thought maybe they moved the oak desk, and I was in the bigger room. And he said, no, this is the nurse's station. This has been here since the track was built. So I looked at the wall, and I said, well, maybe the wall wasn't here. And I saw the stretcher and the desk because they were all lined up. And he said, no, the wall was here. Then I looked up at the ceiling, and I saw the ceiling was low. So I was not on the ceiling because I was the size of a pencil. So I knew I had been up really high in another dimension and saw the two rooms where the nurses were in the back. They were not paying any attention to me on the stretcher. I had seen the two rooms as one exactly as it was. But on the ground, when I went back, it didn't look the same because I wasn't getting the same perspective. Fascinating. So, Yes. So I know. And the cool thing was somebody said, maybe you went to the end of your cord, like you have a cord. Maybe that's where I stopped. I thought it was another dimension. My agent and I went upstairs to see how high up I was. And there was bedding windows above the first aid room. So I saw from way up high, not the earthly stuff, but just what was going on below me from above. So it had to be a different dimension. Anyway, that happens way later. As far as God goes, I didn't turn around. I didn't really get any closer to God. I just knew there was more to life. Mm -hmm. And I was really the real me out of my body. But I didn't try to concern myself with it because I was too busy trying to stay alive in my dysfunctional mess. But yet I had a good career. So, okay. but the point, okay, so the point was mm -hmm. when I, when I meet Pablo, I call him Pablo in the book, he used even... He sort of trans, he became my God. And this is what I'm trying to say for people is it becomes very dangerous when you put a person above God and look for a savior in another person. And I think what I was looking for in my ex-husband, I ended up marrying him, was someone to save me like my stepfather never did. He never called me after the letter. He never came to save me. I never acted out the suicide, and he never saved me anyway. And this man that I was now meeting became this template for me to love me, to save me. So this was all kind of a setup to reenact my – when things went bad, I reenacted all the suicide out on him as if he was my stepfather. As bizarre as that sounds, that's what happened on a subconscious level. Um, it took – everything went well for a while – 
he was sick a lot. Um, one time, I thought, okay, so we started drinking at night. This is the one. There was a lot of clues that there was something wrong. He slept a lot. Okay. Um, um, now, okay, just just to pause here for a minute. Okay. You left off the story with him at the time where he got something over you. He got your big secret, but he still loved you. However, now your mom is your enemy again in his world of manipulation and lies and deceptions. And you're not married yet. So let's just walk that out and uh, tell us when in the relationship... Was it before you got married or after you got married where the drinking and the drug use came in? Because I know that's another part of your story that's very significant. Okay. Well, the first thing I had told him was that I was afraid if anybody found out that if I loved anybody, my mother would try to take him away from me. Like Because I took away my mother's husband, I was afraid if I fell in love, she would take away the person I loved to get me back. So he plated this out on me and said that my mother was always hitting on him. And which she wasn't. It was a total lie, which further alienated me from my mother. Now, he also told me that everyone at the racetrack, I told him every everything. I told him I was very concerned that people would think I was sleeping with someone for Mount. So I didn't even want to ride his horses. So then he made up lies that other people were saying I was sleeping with them. So he told me that this guy and that guy were saying I was the girlfriend. He had He turned me against everybody that I absolutely loved and trusted on the racetrack. Um, he said, he said, um, oh, they're saying that they sleep with you. And then, which turned me off to everybody. Then I hated what I was doing. I hated everyone on the track. I was turned, he took every, he stripped everything away from me little by little. And he isolated me. And so at one point I just said, well, the heck with it. I'm just going to quit riding altogether. And so, and, and this reads, you read how this all happens much better in my book. It's, it's, it, it unfolds. And I also put in italic stuff going on in my subconscious and looking into it. But so anyway, he very methodically, where I'm not even looking at him, takes me away from my family and my career. At one point, he even said we were going to go to the islands. But he said there was a rumor going around the track that I was going to have an abortion, which was not true. Total lie. Nobody even knew we were going away. And I said, well, then we won't go away. So everything he did was to tear me down so that he had total power over me. I don't understand why someone would do this. It's just like evil, but I don't understand because I thought he loved me. I thought he was the only one that loved me and the only one that could save me. So anyway, um, I, I stopped riding, and then I was still his girlfriend, but I felt like I was floundering because I had no career. I wasn't married to him yet, and so... Um, my mother had an idea that I should do a television show down at Monmouth Park, which I did, um, in order to leave him and not be such an easy, you know, do everything he wanted. So he would have to fly down to see me at the track, at this other racetrack. So then he asked me to marry him. So my mother's little scheme worked. <laughs> but anyway, um, he had to get separated, divorced first. That was a whole other story. Um, so as So now when we went out, we would drink. I had never drank before. But as things start, as I'm getting more and more isolated and he's my world and nothing's happening in our life, I would drink at night. And then as far as sex, sex was really messed up because for the first time in my life, I wanted him. I wanted somebody. I wasn't being raped. I liked sex. I wanted to be with my husband. And 
I would go to bed and he would turn his back on me and he said to me you want to too much and I'm like thinking oh my god I'm raping this man so at that point I said I am going to drink this whole bottle of vodka before I hit the bedroom and this way I won't remember what happens so I specifically use the alcohol he would go upstairs and I would chug a lug to get so wasted that whatever I did in the bedroom I wouldn't remember if I instigated it which I usually did I wouldn't remember and I would wake up knowing we did something but I don't know what we did or who ins who you know I didn't know I didn't remember anything these are called blackouts so that's how I got to drinking horribly and I was also bulimic um, but I believed I was happy this man he had books on Hitler Mengele he was really into mind control and he told me how happy we were and I totally believed I was happy and I was living the most miserable life. I would cut, I would drink, and I would throw up all day. And I believed I was happy. You aren't the first person to report to me that there was heavy alcohol use almost encouraged in the course of relationship to assist in the sexual component between husband and wife of uh, I guess within the context of relationship with these manipulators and abusers uh, I, I find that piece very interesting it's just another data point for me because I like to track trends right and say oh this is actually something they do intentionally uh, I think that there was some intentionality behind that and others that are listening to this and track their own lives and what happened with them may say, whoa, they, that, that's what happened to me. I, 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 thank you for sharing that piece. Well, if I, it got rid of the guilt, it got rid of the guilt and I felt like I was raping him because that's what was done to me when I didn't want to and somebody did anyway of course it wasn't rape and I didn't know he was a huge drug addict and that's why he didn't want to have sex I had no idea I thought he was just tired a lot like Archie Bunker we were a married couple I didn't know what was normal in a relationship I just thought he was tired a lot and meanwhile he was on huge amounts of synthetic heroin which is methadone he was taking a thousand dollars a day but I didn't know this at the time so I blamed myself for everything everything and he already had a son, which I took out of the book, from a prior marriage. So, of course, the fact that I wasn't getting pregnant was my fault. Um, but thank God I didn't get pregnant. In fact, I didn't even know if we were having sex to get pregnant, but I was pretty sure we were. But um, So everything was my fault. He was perfect. I was a mess. And thank God he let me see a bulimia. Uh, so I told him my big secret at one point, which was the bulimia. That's the secret he didn't know. And he told me he had a secret. But he didn't tell me what his secret was. So I let it go. But he let me see a doctor, a psychologist for my bulimia. But he said, you have to keep everything about your mother, your stepfather. It can't be about me. He said, if you get off topic with this doctor, you're coming back and talking to me because I'm your best psychologist. I went to school for psychology. He was a real control freak. He also told me he was a, um, meanwhile, he was, he was a trainer. He had all the best horses in the country, but his father is the one that set up the stable. It was handed to him. So he really had all his assistants doing the work. He just had to show up for a few hours and come home. So he had a setup where he could be a drug addict and get away with it. 
But anyway, he told me he was a mercenary. He had um, hidden, he had camouflage. He had thirty guns. He would he would play out books and movies on me. He would tell me he was the character in these movies and books, and I believed they were that that really happened. And I would say, well, where are all the articles when you raced your motorcycles? Where you know when did you do this? Like you were you you were married. You had your when did this happen? And he could never pin it down because they were all lies. In fact, he played out the movie Gaslight on me which my psychiatrist found out later because he would he would hide his pocket watch just like in the movie Gaslight where the husband tries to make the woman go crazy he hides his pocket watch in her pocketbook and then she finds it and he says you stole my pocket watch and he wants to lock her up do you know the movie i'm talking about that might be before Gaslight. my time well they call it gaslighting from the movie Gaslight uh -huh. and gas and gas, so he was trying to make her, well, my husband would try to do this, but I didn't know I was supposed to be going crazy. So I'm like, I don't know where your pocket watch is. It didn't register that he was playing out a movie on me, which I found out later when I watched and read books and movies and stuff. I realized what was happening. But I believed him with my heart and soul. I thought he was wonderful. And meanwhile, I was just this, you know, he was just using me and he was a drug addict. So... Okay, so, so go ahead you, and ask me more questions. You, you are coping with a, a dysfunction in your marriage, or you think that you're coping with it by getting heavily intoxicated. You know, that, that's what's happening on the surface. You're, you're getting intoxicated. And yep. then there was the drug abuse that happened at some point. Now, how did that end? No, no, he had, he had the drug abuse. I did oh, not do drugs. Oh, okay. No, no, no. No, okay. he was the drug addict. I didn't, I was against drugs and alcohol to me, my stepfather used to drink and my mother, not heavily, but my stepfather drank heavily and did drugs, but he hid that all. I mean, he didn't hide the drinking, but he did hide the drugs because I found out later from people at the track that he was doing cocaine and all kinds of horrible things. But, but anyway, um, so I didn't know he was doing drugs, but I, I was definitely drinking into blackouts and in the morning I wouldn't remember. And I would be okay during the day, but again, I would cut, I would throw up in the day. And then when we go to bed at like eight o'clock, cause he would pass out at eight o'clock, I would drink. So that was my life. And, and so I, I couldn't wait for something to change. He said he hated training horses. So I couldn't wait for him to do something else. And what ended up happening was he lost the stable. What happened was his father had actually been robbing, I think, the stable. And I think they found out. He had like Breeders' Cup horses and derby winners. But a lot of them were his father's because his father kind of controlled this big stable. It belonged to a really rich guy. Um, I won't say his real name, but he's – and you would know who he is in this country. And so they – he – took the horses away and, and was going to sell them in a sale well this made my husband i call him pablo in the book realize that he was going to have a money problem now i didn't think we had a money problem i thought we were fine we lived in a big ha house i had i had a checkbook to pay for groceries and stuff that was my own checkbook he would give me a check every month so i didn't have any idea when he said all of a sudden i said well this is good now you can be a pilot or sale or do whatever you want to do and he he said no but there's going to be a money problem well i didn't know why it ends up he tells me he's on this medicine so he plays this medicine card and so we're waiting for his medicine to come federal express and everything's about the medicine well the medicine was drugs but i believed it was medicine 
And when I told my psychiatrist about it, my psychologist about it, he looked it up. He said it's methadone, and it's he was taking huge amounts of it, like buying it off the street and taking two-liter Coke bottles of it. And one teaspoon is like the normal amount. It would come in these little tiny – he was getting it off the street. So I didn't know he was spending $1,000 a day on it, but I found out – but I did know he was on the medicine, and that was his big secret. So thank God for my psychologist – but the moment he started pointing to a finger at my ex-husband, he said, you can't see him anymore. Well, we went to Florida with some of his father's horses. He had lost the whole stable, but he still had 10 of his father's horses to train. And I didn't know why he wanted to train for his father because he hated his father. Very similar to my stepfather. The whole He was very much like my stepfather, hated his parents. So um, anyway, down in Florida, everything started to unravel. That's when I found out he was spending $1,000 a day, and I just tried to kill him. I just wanted it to end. I wanted my life to end. I, I was married to a liar. My dreams became my stepfather and my husband were interchangeable. They were the same person, and I wanted him to just finish me off. One time I just said, finish me off, and he took a, he took a rope, and he hung me from the shower in the bathroom, and we were renting a – we had a condo above his parents' condo. And he, then he left, and the shower head, he left, and we had, oh, we also had a suicide comp. Uh, if he died, I would die. If I die, he would die. And this was from a couple years back. We were going to, like, it was like a suicide pack, right? So anyway, so he hung me from the shower, but the shower head broke, and I hit my head on the tub. And right away, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's killing himself, and I'm not dead. So this is how convoluted it was. So I go, and he's left the apartment, and I'm like, where did he go? He's going to kill himself, and I'm not dead. So I, I went. he went to look at sailboats. This was his scheme, I think, was to buy a sailboat to sell my house that I had to get money for the drugs. But he was convincing me it was for a sailboat. So I ended up finding him. He had checked into a motel as an alibi, probably thinking I was dead, and was out buying, trying to buy a sailboat, or that was his alibi. Meanwhile... I was so messed up in my head that I, I couldn't think straight because I still wanted to believe he loved me, even though he was lying. I mean, all this is laid out a lot better in my book. But the point was, he wanted me dead. He wanted me out of the picture. I don't know if he had an insurance policy on me or he, I knew too much about his father and the money. And I was becoming a problem because I was just a drunk who was suicidal and I was just in his way. And I knew too much about his drugs and I knew way too much about everything. So he wanted to get rid of me because he couldn't control me anymore because I would just drink and I'd say, you, you have your medicine, here's mine. And I'd chug a lug the vodka and whatever else I could find. And he would be mad because he couldn't control me when I was like that. I was drinking in the morning, everything. So then um, finally he... I go to an AA, I wa he left, he couldn't, he didn't want to be around, we had one car, and he left, this was in Florida, and so I was at my point where I can't live like this anymore, and I would call out to God, and he would send me, like my sister would send me scriptures, or he would send me things, I know God kept me alive, there was this little red book I found with scriptures in it, and so I started hanging on to God, like, God has to save me from this, because this is really, really bad. And um, so I had one foot in with God and one foot in with my, you know, wanting to die. It was it was a spiritual battle. I'm telling you, there was demons in that apartment. There was it was so demonic. And I don't know if this was a doorway from my from my husband's drugs or from him. I don't know. It was demonic even at his house. 
looking back, it was demonic. In his house, it was always cold, and in this place in Florida. So what happened was um, I went to an AA meeting. I walked because I was, like, at my wit's end. I walked to an AA meeting thinking I'd get help, and and the people were wonderful. So I came back home, and he, when he got back, I told him about it thinking he probably won't want to go because he's a control freak but he actually agreed to go so when he was there he announced and this is a man that has no friends I was his only confidant he announced to the whole group that he was going to check himself into a hospital and get better well they looked at him like he was God he became their new favorite person like immediately he had some sort of charisma that could just it was like a spell and they all said, oh, we're going to support you. We'll support you in the hospital. And I was dumbfounded. I had no idea his drug addiction was this bad. I didn't think I could live without him for one day. I couldn't believe he was checking into a hospital and I'd be left all by myself. I was dumbfounded. And I felt like I was betrayed. So, But I had to go along with it because he was going to get better, right? So I was very confused. So he checks into the detox and cuts off all contact with me. His contact now was with AA and his parents. I was left out of the loop completely. I wasn't told from the hospital if he was alive or dead. I didn't know if he was alive. The only thing I got was a phone call from his roommate there for cigarettes, which was a trigger for me because when my stepfather, when I was little, my mother had stopped smoking. And my stepfather came around, and he and my mother, my mother started smoking again, and that was their little secret together. So my stepfather, who was supposedly my boyfriend, would smoke with my mother. It was almost like it was his secret lover. So I looked at cigarettes like his secret lover because he would be with my mother, right? So when my husband smoked, it was okay, but then when he quit, when he went back to smoking again, it was a complete trigger for me. It was like he was having an affair with a woman. That's how it felt to me. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it was a trigger for me. So he had the guy in the hospital call me to ask for cigarettes, knowing I would go ballistic, that he was smoking. Oh, and before that, when he checked into the rehab, he asked for smoking, and I got so angry, they actually called Code White, put me on the stretcher, and put me in the emergency room. When he was going into the detox, I got locked up. I mean, he had told the doctors I was crazy. He was so scheming. I mean, and then he would trigger me in front of everybody so that I was the one that got locked up. But my grandmother helped me get out of the hospital. This is when he first went into the detox. She was in Florida. She helped me get out, and then I was on missing persons list. Hmm. And um, it was crazy. The book is completely crazy. You can't – it's like a murder mystery. Um, but anyway, my – so so he was in the hospital trying to get me to kill myself. Um so at one point, even the parents turned against me, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what was going on with the hospital. So I, I, it was like it was some demonic thing. I was trying to, I wasn't even drinking, but I took this knife, and it was like, do it, do it, do it. And I'm like, it was like a demon. And I had the knife, and instead of killing myself, I started just scraping the counter. And it was, and then I threw the knife, it was like the knife went flying across the room. It was definitely demonic presence in there. And I started crying, and then his father came upstairs and called my father and my father came down now I had a decent relationship with my father but I wasn't close to him because um, when he when he left my mom he remarried and and that, 
although we were close, we were, he wasn't that close. So I never was a, my father was never a threat to my ex-husband. So he never spoke badly about him. He only spoke badly about my mother and my sister and the people that loved me and were, I was close to, that was to disconnect me from them. But my father was never a threat to him. So he never said anything bad about my father. So my father felt safe to me. So my father came down. I wouldn't let my mother help me because I thought she was against me. I thought everyone was against me. So my father came down and, and, and he couldn't believe the insanity of everything going on. And he brought me to the hospital to try to go to a family meeting with my husband. And, and even the lady that was running the group was like, what drug are you on? So they had been told a lot of lies about me in order to separate me from him and, and keep from calling me. Now the counselor never called me and she didn't understand, but my ex-husband had done all this. So basically, um, with that, I, well, oh, then we had to go back and meet a cop. My father took me to a cop's because I had to get off missing persons list from leaving the hospital. So then we drove up. My father and I got finally, we went back to the apartment and the parents had locked me out. After that family meeting, they said, you're the one who's to blame. And they pointed the finger at me. Yet he had been on drugs for like 20 years and I was only with him like five. And they blamed me for everything. And my father was like, this is crazy. And then we went back to the apartment and they had put everything in the house in garbage bags and locked me out. So at that point, I said enough is enough. And my father and I drove out of Florida back to New York. Now, at this point in your story, you're 26, 27? 25. Oh, I stopped drinking when I was 20. Yeah, about 20. I was about 26 now. Yeah. It's 1988. I was born in 62. I was 26. Yeah, 26. My goodness. Wow. Huh. And um, at this point, you're not jockeying. No. You're, I, I, I was I'm, a mess. Well, yeah, you're you're a mess. Situation's a mess. Um, and... All this time, you know, you had this developing relationship with God, but I assume as the uh, years went by and the uh, addiction in, increased in your life and the self-mutilation and all the drama, God became more and more distant from your reality. Yeah. And yes, you know, like sin gets in the way between you and God, and that's what was happening, yep. My goodness. And, and, and so I, I'm going to take a leap and say at this point after you were leaving and going back to New York with your dad there's an intervention from God awaiting you there was um, well I, I'll, I'll speed forward through the fact that my husband came back to New York and kept trying kept trying to push me over the edge to kill myself um, once I had a gun and I called him and he hung up and then the police came and so there's a whole lot of stuff I, I just kept running back to him and I put this in my book because mm -hmm. people as crazy as it sounds you keep running back to these horrible people that treat you horrible because I thought if he could just love me even though I knew he lied he was like my savior I wasn't turning to God I wanted him to love me and that's very dangerous 
And even though I knew he was a liar, I wanted him to just tell the truth, but he couldn't. He was incapable of ever telling me the truth. So it was toxic. So what happened was eventually I ended up in a, I, I went into a rehab for 30 days because I figured if he got better in a rehab, maybe I could get better in a rehab. That was the way I was thinking. I couldn't separate myself from him. In the book, I was a with Pablo. I was a non-person. I was just his appendage. So I go into a rehab and, and in there, um, I started, I was kept away from him, which kept me from being suicidal. I was kept away from the alcohol. I sort of took on my old riding identity again, and everyone in the hospital liked me. Oh, you should ride again. You're, you know, you are a good jockey, blah, blah. This is five years I had been out of racing. And so I started to get my feet back on the ground. I got away from my ex-husband. So I went back to riding. And I was starting to, I was definitely at this point seeking after the Lord. I was reading the Bible in, in the, in the um, hospital. And I was definitely seeking God. And um, so anyway, I went back to racing. And everything was okay for a little while. But then they told me in the hospital it had to do with my stepfather when I was young. I didn't believe that. I thought my whole problem was my ex-husband. If I got away from him, I'd be fine. So they l made this one connection that was good about the hospital. So when I went went back to racing I was winning again crazy five years out and I'm coming back and I'm winning more races than ever but they told me in the hospital I'd be attracted to somebody like my ex-husband if I didn't go back with him if I didn't deal with my past and they said I had anger at my mother I said I have no anger at my mother what are you talking about meanwhile I was angry at her you know when I got drunk I would get angry with her but I suppressed it so I went back to racing and I started dating this guy who was bad news he was just like my ex again and I started drinking again I hadn't been drinking I started throwing up again and then I said I can't live like this I broke off the relationship but I said what is wrong with me and then I would get drunk and say step on the crack break your mother's back where is this anger coming from I didn't get it so I said God show me what's wrong with me I, I don't know what's wrong with me I, I really didn't and I didn't know why I was winning races yet I couldn't stop drinking and I broke off the relationship and I was still in, you know, doing myself in. So what happened was a jo another jockey, uh, an article came out in Sports Illustrated. Uh, Robbie Davis had, he was in an accident. His horse hit another jockey and killed him. And Robbie was so devastated that he had hidden in the closet. And then he went and took time off and he went back to Idaho where he grew up. Well, this article came out about a year later, and it was about why Robbie was so devastated. It was called The Longest Ride. It's Sports Illustrated. You could find it. He came out in the article that he had been sexually molested by his stepfather. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it happened to someone else and another jockey. I couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe he told. I was blown away that he told. I'm like, Robbie told. Robbie told. How did, how did he tell? I couldn't believe it. So... God was showing me that, you know, someone else had happened to, and he told. So I'm thinking, maybe, maybe my problems go back to my childhood. So I was praying for God to give me memories and to help me. And so I started, and I prayed for another spill. <laughs> so I'd have time to figure it all out. Oh, so no. I broke my back fourth time, right? No. Yeah, fourth time. So I'm laying oh. in bed, drinking, going 
why do I not want to deal with this God? I didn't want to go back. But at one point I said, I either have to die or deal with this. So at that point, I faced some of the hardest memories that God gave me. I actually told my mother about the window incident when I was nine or 10 and I saw them kissing and I went ballistic. That was my key memory. And it was the one where if I told, my mother would know it was my fault and kill me. And that was like the big lie that Satan had put in me to keep me from revisiting that was that my mother would kill me. If she knew that and she knew the truth, she would kill me. And instead, she started to cry, and she said, you were manipulated, and she brought the play out that my stepfather had written about me, Goodness and about gracious. what every, and, and so, yeah, so it was a, quite a reality. Anyway, this is getting really long, are you gonna, <laughs> I gotta wrap it up, right? You're, um, you're fine, you know, one of the cool things about having a podcast, Karen, is that I can go as long or as short as I want, depending on, you know, my schedule and the schedule of my guests. You know, you're doing a great job. I, I, but we're wrapping it up here because um, it, what happened? It was so qu- It was so amazing what happened. Do oh, you have any questions before I go on? No, please continue. Okay, so my mother was crying, and I said, "Oh my gosh, she knows, and she loves me. She cares." And so we talked every night for nine months straight about what I experienced, what she experienced. We unraveled the lies. Whatever I could remember, I talked about. And I didn't get all the memories, but I got a lot of them. And they were enough to show. She said, you were nine, you were 10. And it wasn't the sex abuse so much that did the damage. It was the it was the nine and 10 year old that believed she was bad and her mother hated her and all the rest of it. That was where the real key damage was done. Um, and then, you know, all the rest of it just built on top of that. But I had to go back to that memory when I was nine or 10 and I told myself, I don't know if that's a vow you make to yourself when you're young, I'm bad and I'm going to hide it forever. Well, that hidden wall, that hidden memory was so well hidden. It took everything to get behind it because your, your, your psyche is made to protect yourself and you split to protect yourself. So to find those memories, you have to go behind a wall that you built to hide from yourself. It's a, you need God's help because alone you can't do it, but God can find the memories and give you the strength, but you have to be willing. You have to be willing to face all the demons, and you know what? They're, big, they're just big ghosts. They're not really as bad as you think they are. When they really come out of the closet, it was all based on a lie. I was nine years old. I mean, I wasn't bad. I was manipulated. And my belief that I was bad and my mother would kill me had lasted until up into my 20s all based on this lie that I had buried. I mean, it's so, it's like Satan did all this. He planted mem- He planted thoughts and then he, you know, Satan can't kill you, but he can make you kill yourself. And I think that's what he's the great deceiver. You have quite a story, Karen. And so here you are. God takes you through these memories. He gets you to this initiation point, this initial lie that begins this detour in your life that leads to all these other things. Well, the first thing I had to do was mm-hmm. I, I was to um, 
I couldn't stop drinking. So mm-hmm. now that I had started my manuscript and I was free for not, the truth will set you free. That's my verse, John eight thirty two. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth does set you free. The truth that God shows you about who you are and your past. And, and there, there are answers for everyone, but they have to be bold and willing. I think most people are at the bottom of the barrel before they want to face their demons. And people that are just getting through life, like my sister, they won't deal with it because they're not uncomfortable enough. So I thank God that I went to the bottom of the barrel because that's where God, that's where I sought the truth. And I can't live like this anymore. God, either kill me or show me the truth. And I think sometimes it takes that to um, really want to go through that. It's mostly the fear that keeps you from it, that keeps you from finding the truth. It's the fear of what will happen if you know the truth. And um, it's just a big boogeyman because the truth wasn't bad, and I thought it was horrific. So um, anyway, the thing was, I was going back to writing again. I'd, I'd, I'd stopped halfway through my book, The Point of the Out-of-Body Experience. Like I told you, I went back, and then I had another spill and was able to write about that. But I had put the book aside at that point. And that's also when Simon and Schuster had wanted it. Mm-hmm. But um, I was still drinking, and I said, this is what I said. I said, God, alcohol's always going to be around. But if you can take away my desire for it, and I know you can. I knew God could do anything. And I said, God, you can take away my desire for alcohol. Just do it. I'm giving it to you. I'm done with it. It's yours. I'm not taking it back. Take away my desire. Say the word. It's done. That was 27 years ago. I never wanted another drink. Whoa. Praise yep. God. Praise God. It, I asked him to take away my desire. And if I smell alcohol, I want to vomit. It's like the smell of Bailey, like the smell of flavored coffee reminds me of Bailey's. And the smell of lime Coke reminds me of the vodka. It makes me sick. I can't even, I mean, I have no desire for that. It. it it's amazing what God did overnight. <sighs> My goodness. So, so as we're concluding this program, Karen, I, I want to ask you this. Who is Jesus Christ to you, and what do you want people to know about the role he has played in your life? Well, he is my everything. Um, like, I have not dated since I had a son um, five years after with my with somebody else and they abandoned him me when he, he was six weeks old so I raised him myself and God told me to homeschool him and I cried and I said no God I can't homeschool what will people think I'm a single mother but in the end I did it and it was a huge blessing because I learned how to write and edit my book and God always knows best and his ways are always the very opposite sometimes of what we think we can do because then he gets the glory and um, so I just I just try to walk every day. And, and another thing is forgiveness is huge. That's love and forgiveness are huge. You can't harbor hate and resentment and have the Holy Spirit be ruling in your life. It just doesn't work. Um, forgiving, we're commanded to forgive. And although I didn't feel like I wanted to forgive my ex-husband or my stepfather, I did because God told me to. If we don't forgive, he won't forgive us. And later the feelings of forgiveness came. So it was more of a choice, not a feeling. And I made the choice and I did it and the feelings came later. And unforgiveness is like taking poison and thinking the other person will die. It only hurts yourself. And so 
I'm set free from that. And I'll tell you, though, Satan is like a roaring lion because when I put this book out, and it was, like I said, 27 years of growing in the Lord, and that's why I believe it came out now with all the pedophilia, with people coming forward with the alternative media where I can get my voice out. Um, I believe God's timing is perfect with everything, with how he taught me about writing and editing and everything. Everything in my life, everything has a time and a season like in Ecclesiastes. And so everything that you go through, God will use for his kingdom if you will turn your life over to him. And the other thing I say is, I throw my raft in God's river, hop in and go for a ride. It's his river, it's his course, and just put me in your river. It's not my will, it's wherever he's working, I want to be there. And I, I want to give people hope that God is incredibly able to do above anything you can be on, think, anything. He's so much more than we give him credit for. He's so much bigger. Mm. And, and the more I learn about him, the more the deeper the love and the more I just want him to live in me and it's a constant battle because we are in the flesh but we can overcome if we if we answer to the spirit and not the flesh we can walk walk in in the way I haven't like I said I haven't done anything suicide anything like that in 27 years and I just keep growing with the Lord and praising his name and I don't know what else I can say well here's the last thing you can say Karen if there's anybody that's listening to you and has been moved by your testimony and is saying to themselves, Karen, how can I know the Jesus that you serve? What do you tell them? It's a personal relationship. You don't need church. The Bible came later for me. Um, But just say, you know, ask God to show him that he's real and then ask Jesus into heart your heart just say this simple prayer it says in the Bible that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and and we believe in our heart that he died and rose again we're saved so you just have to say Jesus I believe that you're the son of God that you died on the cross you're buried and rose again and you took away my sins on the cross and I make you Lord of my life I hand my life over to you. Just be Lord of my life. And little, he will step into your life and start doing miracles as you are able to handle them. He never gives you more than you're able to handle. He just takes it one baby step at a time and he shows you the way out of the dark tunnel. Karen, I want to say thank you for taking the time to be on this program with me. You did an outstanding job. I am very excited about your book, Racing With My Shadow. And folks, you can get it right now if you jump onto anywhere, including Amazon.com. Racing With My Shadow, the compelling true story of America's first leading female jockey by Karen Rogers. And... Um, One- one other thing I wanted to say is if people want to get a hold of me, um, I do have a website and they can leave a, I have an email address on there if they want to tell me their story or I'll call them, I'll write to them, I'll give them a book if they can't afford it, whatever they need. You know, I'm God's servant, so don't hesitate to reach out to me. My website is www.racingwithmyshadow.com and my email is on there and I encourage anybody to, you know, take that plunge and start getting help racingwithmyshadow.com Thank you so much, Karen. 
And folks, until next time, you've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.